HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Middle Eastern food expert and author, Christine Sahadi Whalen. In this episode, we'll talk to Christine about Sahadi's specialty foods, her IACP award-winning cookbook, Flavors of the Sun, and we'll hear Christine's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Happy 2023. Welcome back to season 16. We're marching our way towards our 200th episode. And as always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Two things that were core for Julia, building cultural bridges and helping establish food writing as a valued profession. Two things that maybe now are kind of taken for granted, but our goal at the foundation is to keep these values front and center. In that spirit, we continue to support IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, an organization that Julia helped build to professionalize exactly that, food jobs and food writing. IACP cookbook awards are as coveted an honor of those from the James Beard Foundation. And uniquely, IACP bestows a Julia Child First Book Award in recognition of Julia's commitment to elevating food writing. Each year, independent judges select the most outstanding cookbook written by a first-time author. The foundation supplements this IACP award with a $5,000 grant to help the author further their career. In the past four years, award grants have gone to Samin Nosrat for the acclaimed salt-fat-acid-heat, Naz Garavian for her Persian cookbook, Bottom of the Pot, Chef Johannes Gabriesis for Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa, and Declare Safitz for her debut cookbook, Dessert Person. To hear more, check out episode 15 with Samin, episode 54 with Naz, episode 111 with Johannes, and episode 148 with Claire. Someone who is evolving her own professional career in food is Christine Sahadi Whalen. Christine's debut cookbook, Flavors of the Sun, The Sahadi's Guide to Understanding, Buying, and Using Middle Eastern Ingredients, 
is the 2022 recipient of the IACP Julia Child First Book Award. It was published by Chronicle Books in the fall of 2021. Christine is the culinary director and a fourth-generation co-owner of Sahadi's, also known as the Sahadi Importing Company, a purveyor of Middle Eastern specialty foods in Brooklyn. Established in 1890, it is New York City's longest continually operated specialty food store and has been a fixture on Brooklyn's Atlantic Avenue since 1948. The James Beard Foundation honored Sahadi's with its America's Classic Award in 2017. A second location with a cafe opened in 2020. Christine, her brother Ron, and her husband Pat formed the current family troika steering the store into the 21st century. She joins us today to talk Middle Eastern ingredients and tell us more about her award-winning cookbook, Lavers of the Sun. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you. Nice to be here. We're glad to have you. So before we took a talk about the book, let's talk about Sahadi's, because actually I'm embarrassed to say I was not that familiar with it. And I was just curious, not many chances you get to talk to somebody who has a fourth generation business. And I was just curious how that business has evolved over those four generations, because I also think that kind of coincides with a lot of evolution in how American eaters have evolved. I agree 100%. A lot of the changes and in the industry and in the business are go hands in hands with the changes in the neighborhood, in um, the international travel. I mean, we started off as a very Middle Eastern oriented store. We, um, when my grandfather came and joined his uncle, they, they did what most immigrants did. They sold food because that's what they were familiar with. Um, my grandfather moved to the, um, the current store in 1948 he moved from Lower Manhattan to the current store. And um, the neighborhood of downtown Brooklyn was still very much a lot of Middle Easterners. But over the next 20 years, that changed dramatically. And the neighborhood became much more eclectic, um, Much a lot of professionals, a lot of people who were extremely well-traveled. Uh, Middle Eastern food was not a thing in the, you know, in the 40s. But as, as people, as the neighborhood evolved, things changed and we changed with the neighborhood. So we went from being all exclusively Middle Eastern to being Middle Eastern focused uh, and providing some of the things that, that people wanted, you know, people that were in the area. I mean, the internet also has completely changed the food landscape. Social media has changed it. There's so many different variables that, that factor into the evolution of Sahadi's as well as any other, any other ethnic food purveyor in the city. Um, that I think that it, it's a lot of it's tagged to this that so much knowledge is available to everybody today. So it changes, it changes, you know, it changes what what you're what you're gonna sell to who. It's a very interesting, we learn as much from the customers as they learn from us, which is great. I mean, we love that. That's part of um loving the whole food world and in, in, especially in Brooklyn is a very vibrant food world. So um we go with it. Well, and I think maybe let's talk about that a little more, because I think what I understood is in the early days, and when you're talking about when your grandfather was running and maybe your father, the business was set up in a certain way to service immigrant communities looking for things they were familiar with from home versus now your audience is, I think, much more diverse than that. Without a doubt. I mean, they, you know, the... It, it tends to be immigrant communities tend to tend to develop around their cultural spaces, or in our case, the the, the Middle Easterners. Most of the early settlers settled around the churches. So where there was a Middle Eastern church, that's where there was a community. So you had a ready-made uh, clientele base. They would go to they would come to, after church. They would come to the even if they didn't live in the neighborhood, they would always come because especially then a lot of people did not speak English. A lot of the recent immigrants. And they wanted to be comfortable. They wanted to be able to ask for their food in their language. And they wanted that sense of community. Still to this day, people will come into the store during a, a you know, like a, a snowfall or something. Everybody stands around talking. It's very, it's not so much a straight out grocery store as it is a place where people in the neighborhood will come and talk to other people. It was like that before also. It's just that the community around us has changed. So instead of being all Middle Easterners, now the community is whoever lives in downtown Brooklyn, let's say. They'll come in and they'll, almost hang out you know it's just a very we function as part of the as part of the community as much as we function as a grocery store 
Yeah, I love I love that. It's such a I mean, I think that's one of the great things about New York is there's maybe more of an intensity or maybe because it's closer quarters, but but that these food venues very much, um, particularly ones that endure or community centers. I'm, I'm thinking of the German deli that I used to go to all the time in, in, in Flushing. That was the gathering spot for the neighborhood where, where my part of my family lived. Yeah, it's a very interesting concept, but I, it's, it's, it's very nice to be part of that community because people come in and tell us about other customers. You know, it's just very, it's very organic. It, it's not a planned, it's just kind of organically grew that way. Well, and I think when you're a fixture of a neighborhood, it's a certain galvanizing comfort point that people know, even if they just feel like, you know, maybe people are coming in to buy some nuts, even though they don't need them, but they're, they've got this instinctive desire to kind of connect a little bit. And then, mm-hmm. and it's 15 minutes and it's done, but it's enough. Yeah, I think so. And I think the fact that it is the same family helps a lot. People are, there's a very much a continuity. I mean, you, so I'm not at Atlantic Avenue anymore because I'm at the new store. Um, my brother's at Atlantic, but also my son is at Atlantic. And once in a while, my dad comes down. So there's very much a sense of, we ourselves are, are, are from almost our own community because there are so many of us. Um, my daughter works with me. So we have a lot of the, and we have a lot of long, long time employees. People have been with us 20, 30 years. That also helps to form that community. People come in to chat with the team or to see my dad, or for whatever reason, um, it, it helps to cement that we are part of the community and not just here to sell groceries, but to participate in the communities that we that we work in. Well, and I love that. And I think for Julia, that was such a value that she had that she saw food and food making was as much about the people and being with people. And that that was part of the joy in it, that maybe sometimes she felt like people didn't totally get the the full circle of it. I agree. I mean, food is a great equalizer. Everybody buys food. No matter, <laughs> no matter anywhere in the world, everybody buys food. And the truth is, if you think about like even the, the, the variety of spices that are available. So, I mean, we probably have 100 or 200. We have a lot of spices. But I got to tell you, people from every single culture use similar spices. It's just that the way I use it may be different than the way somebody from North Africa will use it, maybe different than some, somebody in Ireland would use it. But we're all starting with the same kind of playing field. You know, we're all buying proteins, we're all buying spices. We're all, and part of that is, I think that's one of the things I love most about food is that no matter what culture the, the, the person is from, there's always something that you can learn from them or that you can talk about with regards to that. And I think that that's a, a very important part of food that gets lost. And I just have to make this recipe, you know, and just learning about how different, different cultures use the same ingredients is really, to me, very, very interesting. Yeah, I love that. I've become like, um, I'm now, just to make it sort of personal, I'm now for the second time living in a community that has a very large Middle Eastern population. In London, it was mostly Turkish and Cypriot. Now in Los Angeles, where I live in Glendale, is very um, heavily Armenian. A lot of Middle Easterners in Glendale. Yeah, yes. I mean, there's actually lots of Persians. They're just sort of outnumbered by the Armenians. And, um, but I've never... I mean, I used to be able to buy labna in London that I loved, although I actually think it was from an Israeli place where they told me the baker and the main cook was Syrian, which is mm-hmm. its own story. But here you can buy Armenian labna in almost in every, in Ralph's, in the regular grocery store. And, but labna is, in, at least particularly the way the Armenians like it, it's basically creme fraiche. It's, it's sort of like a half creme fraiche, half sour cream. And It's just fascinating how it sort of all kind of is unique in one sense, but universal in another. Yes, very much. Okay, so let's talk specifics. And I wanted to get this sense because I also think the way Sahadi's operates is kind of unique. It's not really designed like any old grocery store. And so I, I wanted you to talk about this breakdown between you sell raw ingredients that you import you sell spices, as you said, but you also curate your own mixes or make mixes yourself. And then you also, I think, sell some prepared foods. Is that right? And how does it break down? Yes, we are we're doing a lot of things out of our spaces, um, <laughs> primarily because we, in, I mean, growing up, this stuff wasn't available. So as, you know, as, as the community started wanting more foods, I mean, we started out as strictly an ingredient store. We imported almost everything ourselves, um, olives from Greece, uh, olive oil from, from Lebanon, um, uh, ch- uh, chickpeas from Mexico, um, apricots from Turkey, like in, in figs from Turkey. We, we, in the beginning, imported everything ourselves. 
Um, that becomes less practical uh, 75 years later um, when, you know, the, the costs are prohibited to bring everything yourself. So now what we have is we have curated partners. So we might bring figs and they might bring apricots and then we share when we get here. This way we both can control, uh, you know, the whole, the whole process. We like to source as much as we can directly from the source because we, are, we have a certain quality level that we do not want to go below. And I don't want stuff that's been sitting in somebody's warehouse for six months. I mean, especially with commodities like, let's say, pistachios or um, apricots or chickpeas. I, it's, a, it's, it's harvested once a year. So I really want to have, I would rather bring it all or as much as I can in the beginning of the season when it's fresh, fresh, and then control it on my end. So we, we, we bring in warehouse our, a lot of our own stuff from overseas. We'll bring it once during when the crop is harvested. And then we will um, we will cold store it so that it's not so that I know the conditions it was it was held in for the year because apricots aren't gonna they, they only have one season they're not gonna come again so I would rather be sure that I know that I'm I'm getting the best quality I can and I am sharing the best quality I can with my with my customers and my clients so we do a lot of our own importing um, in terms of spices we do not import our own spices except for the straight Middle Eastern ones like Aleppo pepper or zaza something like that where I can use a lot of it. I would bring a container or I'll, well, I'll split a container among several items. Other, spi other spices, I will, that's one thing I will go to a partner for, somebody who I know is a regular importer. We do a lot in-house though, even like our spice blends are all made, the spices come from either they're ours or they come from our, one of our um, partners. Once they come to me, uh, we separate them out. In my kitchen in the city, I toast out the spices and I send them back to the warehouse to be ground and hand blended. We like to control as much as we can. That way, every one of our spice blends was developed in-house. We sat down, we looked at some other ones, we looked at some recipes, and we decided what we were looking for in, in that particular blend. Did it need to have more warm spices? Did it need to have more toasted spices? So we control the whole process in that. And they're, they're actually hand-packed. I mean, we're very old-fashioned in that way. We don't have um, a machine that, that bottles. We just scoop them into bottles safety seal them and put them out. Uh, I like that because it means that we have control of the process and it means that all of our stuff is as fresh as it could be and it's consistent from batch to batch. Some of the import is interesting. Like we bring Aleppo pepper. Well, clearly the last 20 years has not been, the last 10 years has not been good to Aleppo. So Aleppo pepper is, a, is one of those very interesting imports where we always imported it from Aleppo directly. Now we haven't brought a container from Syria in maybe eight or nine years. What happens is the farmers, they rely on Aleppo pepper, if that's what they grow, move to Turkey. Mm. Oh, the Syrian farmers themselves move to Turkey. Yes, because they, they in Syria, there are a lot of people, that's what they do. They make one product, they grow one product. When the, when, but they can't just grow Aleppo pepper for Syria. It has to be an export or they can't, make, they can't make enough to keep their families, you know what I mean, and sustainable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those farmers move to Turkey. So I'm still buying from these same farmers. It's just that now they're growing in Turkey. But if I could tell you it took three years and 10 batches until we could get the Aleppo pepper right. Because the ground is slightly different in Turkey and the water is slightly different. You know, it's, it's whatever, mm. the nature of uh, the environment. And um, we really struggled with getting, but because we were working with people that already knew what they what we were looking for, they were able to reproduce it. It just took a while. So, you know, it's been, we are very extremely involved in, 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 in long-term relationships with people. I mean, I know the people that grow our figs. I know the people that grow our apricots. In a lot of ways, we still have people on the grounds in Lebanon sourcing for us all the time. I love that. It's so old school, but it's so the right way to do it. And I could see um, Julia just being very excited to hear about that. And it's wonderful to hear that people are that, you know, committed to something that is in many ways, as I said, old school or old fashioned, but that is also um, for anyone who who's familiar, the way you get the best quality, you know, products. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to, you have to make an effort. And, and there's also these long-term relationships that we have. I mean, we have partners, I have a partner in Glendale, we have a partner in um, Detroit, as well as the people that we partner with overseas. So like, it's very much, a, a lot of this business is still very much about relationships. It's not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not Whole Foods or one of these like big stores where, everything comes on a truck from the warehouse. We still try to get as much as we can, but we also are doing a lot of different things with our space. Both of our stores have a deli, a prepared foods counter that's extensive and rotates seasonally. 
Um, from, so we use all of our spices. We use all of our spices. So we're, I'm in a good position to know that it, the quality is good. If I open it and it's, it's not exactly what I expect, I'm wondering if somebody didn't blend it properly. So we, we're in, very involved in it. Both of our stores have a bakery. Um, Industry City Hand makes all their own pita bread. Atlantic doesn't because they sell too much bread. Um, but we both make Saj bread, which is like a, we have, it's like a big dome that we, uh, we make like a really thin, it's almost like a, like a, a tortilla, so to speak, a, a flour tortilla, except it's very thin. And then we roll up sandwiches out of there. We do a ton of catering out of Industry City, where we also have a cafe and a Mediterranean wine bar. So we have a lot of different, a lot of different pieces going on at the same time, but, um, but it's all in the same Middle Eastern hosp- hospitality world. It's just different angles of different things. I mean, we hand make our own soup mixes and stuff like that for the stores because we start with the best ingredients. I don't need to buy a package mix. I'm happy to use our stuff. Well, I also think, as I said, I've now lived in two very heavily Middle Eastern immigrant uh, neighborhoods. And I realized how much, um, and also from interviewing people, we had Claudia Roden talking about her latest book, which is about the whole diaspora of food from, from, from the Middle East and even sort of slightly beyond. And this just value that people from the Middle East have about freshness and ingredients to the extent that in both London and Glendale, they started their own grocery stores because they wouldn't eat the stuff that was trucked in from God knows where. And they were like, what is this? How, how do you, do you just think that is so culturally ingrained that it's, 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 it's managed to go down for four generations and be sustained? Or I'm just curious what your reaction to that sort of observation is. Well, it's definitely a, a huge part of our culture. I, I mean, a huge part of, I mean, even my two adult kids will look at me and go, why are you growing your own Aleppo peppers on the deck? It's, and I don't have to, certainly I can, our Aleppo peppers are amazing. But it, I feel like if you're a food person and you're a Middle Easterner, there's things that you want to be, that you want to play around with, that you want to be familiar to you. And when somebody sent me some Aleppo pepper seeds, it was maybe 10 years ago, I saved them from year to year. But now I'm like, I grow them. I feel like that is very much a part of Middle Eastern culture is, is, is the food is, food is, food is like our love language. So we always want to have lots of fresh food and every table has to be, I mean, even if people are just coming for 15 minutes, I have to have a board out of, of cheeses and dips and stuff because that's part of what we do. It's like, it's part, it's very much part of our culture. It's very ingrained in, in our culture to be hospitable. Like that whole, I mean, we went to Lebanon about 10 years ago and every place we went, I, by the time we left, I said to my husband, if I never see another piece of food, <laughs> non-stop, and every place was more interesting and, and more, well, and everybody did things from their own angle. So everything was, there was so much to learn and so much to taste. And it was really quite amazing. But it is definitely part of our, it's definitely our love language and it's very much a part of our culture to be, to always be welcoming and hospitable and we do it with food. Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic explanation. And I've just struck, I've had the great fortune of going to Lebanon. Uh, it was many years ago now, but I remember we had gone to the Bacaw Valley uh, to see the ruins and monuments. And then we're coming back and we stopped for a snack, but we were traveling with friends who were diplomats and, um, so of course people wanted to impress them and for a snack we were served more food than i've ever seen in my life and it was delicious but it it was part of like you're saying a cultural expression of i think in this case maybe not love because they were not relatives but um respect yes definitely it's it's just it's just what we do i i'm it's hard to explain to somebody that doesn't come from this culture but it's just what we do no matter when you come there's always food on the table there's always it, it, it's it's also a question of um i feel like especially in the older times maybe not as much today because the generations things have changed but like in the old time it was almost like disrespectful if you didn't have something for a guest so you always had something like even today you go to my my cousins there's coffee time it's like a four o'clock there's coffee time in between meals where they'll sweets out and sometimes somebody will stop by it's 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 not only expected it's they want to do it it's not like it's expected it's just it's part of the it's part of the whole part of the whole culture. And do you think I'm, I'm struck by that exists a bit also in Russian culture to the extent that um, I'd spent time in Russia closer to after the fall of the Soviet Union where people really did not have very much, but they would still entertain guests probably less frequently than you're talking about, but with a lot presenting an elaborate, if not too much food. And do you think that like, 
for example, in Syria right now, which has been so hard hit by the, the civil war there, that people would still do that. They would present more food to guests than they might necessarily be enjoying privately. I 100% think so. I mean, when we were in Lebanon, I mean, I'm from Zahli, which is a, a town at the, in the mountains, and there's a lot of refugees there. And you would look out and the refugees are in, I mean, the, the weather is very temperate. So they're in like kind of tented camps in some spaces. And you could see what was going You could see when somebody came in that they were, they were already scrambling to get something for them to eat, which is very much, and, and the thing is, it didn't surprise me because if, I, if, if there was one thing on the table, if there was one thing in the house, it was going out for a guest. That's just the way, that's just the way they do it. And, but conversely, if they went somewhere else, the other person would, would, would reciprocate because that's, that's the way they do it. And I think it's, I think it's, it's a sign of, it's a sign, it's a, they're, it's a very social culture, extremely social culture. So, and part of being social is, is eating and drinking, no matter whether you're with a business associate or whether you're with a friend or whether you're a refugee in a camp and somebody comes in to see you. It's, it's, I think, kind of nice that, that even in hard, hard circumstances, people can still find their way to wanting to be social. Well, I think that generation generosity and and for humanity is really lovely. I guess the flip side of that is what else is happening in Syria. But from that yeah. from that value, um, th- that that is really great and and must be very gratifying then to be in the the food importing business and then you know a fixture in a community where you get to do all that delicious sharing. I love it. I mean, I can say, I mean, I work a lot, a lot of hours and I work very hard, but I, there's, I definitely, definitely love what I do. All right. After the break, we'll be back with more from Middle Eastern food specialist and cookbook author, Christine Sahadi Whalen. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to Christine Sahadi Whalen, co-owner of Sahadi's, the Middle Eastern Specialty Foods Importer in Brooklyn, and the author of the 2022 IACP Julia Child First Book Award-winning cookbook, Flavors of the Sun. So, Christine, let's talk about this beautiful book. How how would you describe or kind of distinguish it from kind of other books about Middle Eastern food, many of which we've we've talked about um, on this show? Well, I think we when we started to talk about doing a book, we did look at all the available offerings. And I mean, I've sold many of these cookbooks over the years. I've met many of these wonderful authors. Um, we were looking to do something a little bit different. We were looking to we wanted people to learn to cook and use ingredients, not just to follow the recipes. I mean, I'm clearly an American. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, um, but I was definitely brought up on the flavors of the Middle East. Um, I'm, I'm, I was always a working mom, and I wanted to feed my family the same types of foods that I grew up with, but I also had to be practical. <laughs> so quicker, fresher, faster was, was always going to be my motto because, you know, you want to make it work. So we organized the cookbook based on flavor profiles nutty, um, spicy, uh, sweet. We, we wanted to show people that you could use many of these ingredients that we love in different, and if, if you knew the application of the, if you knew that, you know, pomegranate molasses is, was, was uh, you know, sweet and tart at the same time and fruity, where else could you use that? Instead of going out and buying another ingredient. I lived my life in retail with customers who say, I bought a bottle of pomegranate molasses, I used one teaspoon. It's been in my closet for two years. So the idea here was is to show people that 
if you just figured out the flavor profile that you were working with, there was lots of different applications. And a lot of Middle Eastern dishes are very labor intense and time intense. I never had a lot of time for that. So uh, when we came up with the idea for the cookbook, it was really written from the perspective of somebody living in New York City, making things that had to be done in an hour, but I wanted it to taste like home. I wanted it to taste like I spent five hours on it. And a lot of times with the, with the, with the right spices and a slightly different technique using a, let's say using a, a, a more tender cut of meat where it could be grilled really quickly as opposed to long, long, you know, slow cooked in the oven, but still give me that same flavors. That's what we were looking for with this book. So we weren't necessarily looking to do quote unquote a Middle Eastern cookbook as we were looking to you to make a book with Middle Eastern flavors, but that was accessible and um, available to, you know, to, to very to households where there was nobody home to make long, you know, long cooked dishes. And I think that really shines through. And in fact, if you haven't tried pomegranate molasses, once you start using it, it's very addictive and you can use it in, in so many different ways. I love it. And, um, you know, you can use it in large quantities or small, but I, but I love how, and I thought maybe you can talk a little bit more about this approach. You have these different handy guides in the book where you talk about an ingredient like pomegranate molasses or sumac, and you say, here's how you can use it in 10 different ways. Because I think what comes through is you want people to not only buy and enjoy these ingredients, you don't want them to waste them or sit on their shelves for two years when they're not really any good anymore. Exactly. And it's frustrating. I mean, as a customer myself, I'll be frustrated if I buy something and I can't figure out what to do with the rest of it. I'll go through this trouble to Google and try to figure out what else I can do with it or look at the flavor profile and figure out where I can slot it into my normal recipes, but replacing something else. I get that question from customers all the time. And I want, I really wanted customers to look at it, to look at the cookbook, not so much as a straight, I have to add a quarter cup of this and half a cup of this. It is much as sometimes you have to look at, at recipes and then make them your own in a way that's easy. So if you're like, I put pomegranate molasses in a lot of stuff, but a lot of it's not Middle Eastern. A lot of things I put it on are just because I feel like it can use that sweet and fruity yet slightly tart flavor. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I wanted customers to understand and I wanted the, the, the readers to understand there's a lot of different uses for the same item and not to be so um, rigid on the recipe and just think where else would this taste good? You know, it's, it's fruity. So what, what other, you know, I mean, I'll use it to glaze to lamb chops. I'll use it to, to, with pork sometimes. But the idea was, is that people would start thinking about that as opposed to just having a rigid recipe. Those little tips were just like, this is a fun way to use this. Figuring that once you use it in two or three ways, like you said, all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, I know what to do. I know what to use this. Yeah, as you say, it's it's a lot about understanding the pla flavor profile and how it is in ingredients. And then once you have that kind of working knowledge, you can apply it in 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 ways that, um, for lack of a better expression, are not kosher. <laughs> That's exactly true. That's exactly true. You know, you just you, people once people understand the flavors, they don't have, you don't have to worry so much. It, it, you can cook anything. It's just a matter of mixing and matching different marinades and stuff like that. But I think people are nervous to experiment. There's so much information on the internet that they Google a recipe and that's the recipe. So if we don't have something, what do we do? My feeling was to try to fill that gap. Like you don't need to worry about, if you don't have lemon, you can use pomegranate because it's also very tart. You just have to think about how that fits in with the rest of your dish. Well, the pro and the con of, I think recipes help people who don't cook a lot and need guidance or want to make something authentic. The flip side of that is you, you need a lot of cooking knowledge to improvise on a recipe or because in many recipes, ingredients are interchangeable, but certain ingredients are not and it will not work. And you need a fair amount of experience to know what you can swap out and what if you don't have it's going to make the whole dish not work. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we put those little things there so people could read and figure out, okay, maybe I could, maybe this would work. You know, um, it's just, I, we want, I want people to think about food less structured for lack of a better word. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, I love a great recipe, but I also enjoy sometimes just looking at the ingredients I have in, 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 on hand and going, what can I do with this? And I think that people are more hesitant to do that today. People who didn't grow up with, with, you know, watching a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle cook all the time, are more hesitant. I see it even with my own, uh, with my own grown children where, you know, they'll look over my shoulder to see what I'm doing, but it doesn't, I guess when they were growing up, I cooked a lot while they were doing their schoolwork. So it wasn't always, we were all sitting in the kitchen making a dish together. 
So I think that, you know, it's nice that people can get some little tips on what else they can do. Yeah, and I think some of that knowledge, you can watch a lot, but it, it comes from feel. Actually, I think as Julia would say, it comes from failure too. You need to have cooked enough <laughs> and had it not worked to then be like, yeah, I can't do that again. It won't work. Um, I also noted compared to maybe the person who's become, you know, so popular and famous as, for Middle Eastern recipes is Adelengi, but also famous for having like 25 ingredients or 30 ingredients where you do end up having to restock your pantry. And I was struck by most of your recipes do not call for more than five or six ingredients. So, which I appreciate and, and wanted to call out so people understand that. And I also wanted to hear from you on that note, like, maybe some examples of some of your favorite dishes in the book that are great for this time of year in the kind of dead of winter. Yeah. Um, it was like, so at Thanksgiving, we did a Burberry Turkey, um, which was really nice. It made the house smell amazing. I marinated for three days in advance because I just did. I bought I had a fresh Turkey. So, um, it was great though. The, the Burberry spices are so warm and toasty. Um, they really, they really complimented the turkey, and uh, it was like, and I, I did not use a, uh, a pre, uh, a pre, um, what do you call it, marinated turkey. So I, I just put it on there, and I put some olive oil, and it was, it was really delicious. And we served it. I served it with winter squash and with roasted pumpkin seeds because I love winter squash, and <laughs> I feel like it's a nice Thanksgiving dish. Um, mm. Other things for me for the winter is I love roasted veggies, so I'm a big fan of um, any kind of roasted veggies you can. I, I make all the time zatsa roasted veggies and the roasted cauliflower with lentils and dates. They taste great at room temperature. The house smells amazing. You can you can stick them in a you know, tortilla, you know, if you want. Um, throw them on top of um, grain bowls or salads. So I tend to roast veggies. As you can see by the book, I make a lot of roasted veggies. I will always have roasted veggies in the fridge because sometimes my husband gets home late and he'll just, you know, throw them on throw them on a, a lavash crack or, or or like I said, throw them on some farro I have cooked. So I feel like those are really warm I like to do warm flavors in the winter. So in the winter, I tend to use more Russell Hanout. I tend to use more Burberry, unless I'm growing, Burberry's going to grow into. But um, I tend to use more warm flavors and I tend to do a lot of root vegetables in the winter because that's what's available in New York City. So, um, and they, they root vegetables really roast up really nice with olive oil and either zata or, um, or, or the Burberry or Russell Hanout or any one of those garam masala, any one of those um, multi-dimensional warm spices. Uh, and herb blends are usually really good on roasted veggies and, and they taste really great at room temp. So I like things that are practical and I can eat, you know, I can eat at one time. Somebody else can eat at another time. And I think when you're talking that you have roasted veggies in your fridge, I think you're saying that they, you've already roasted them. They're not raw. They're, they're ready and they can either just be eaten at room. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I'll roast off veggies. I like if I have a work from home day, I'll roast two pans of veggies. That way there's something there to top salads during the week or to top, or like I said, to throw in a, a pita bread. Um, I always have some kind of roasted veggies, um, especially the, the zata and the roasted cauliflower from the book. I use them all the time. This, they're in the fridge. And that way, you know, there's something to eat. I, I'm not, we don't take out. So maybe that's part of it. I'm not big on takeout. I go out, but we don't take out. So I need something that when, you know, when one of us gets home from work at night that we can just eat that's healthy and, and delicious and I don't always have time to start for an hour of roasted, you know, vegetables when I get home. So it's nice to do it on a day that I am home and then just be able to have it for the, you know, the week. I like grain bowls and stuff like that, which also benefits from having roasted veggies in your fridge. Well, and I think also that method, I, I've started doing more of that too, is a roasted vegetable that you've made on Sunday will still taste pretty good, either room temperature or heated up on Thursday. Exactly. And it makes life a little bit easier and it makes you less likely to go for something unhealthy or, or, or to take out if you have something that you can uh, available, that you can quickly put together into a meal. And then easy enough, we do a lot of fish. So it's easy in two minutes to cook a small piece of fish if we want an, a protein and dinner's there. Well, and I was going to say, I, there are a lot of, I was not a big cauliflower eater until I started roasting it and cauliflower, which I think tastes terrible boiled and everything like that tastes like candy if you roast it properly. And I think it, it'll just, uh, if, if you've not been into certain root vegetables, but you haven't had them, you know, roasted with olive oil and spices, it will totally change your whole perception of them. I agree. My husband was not a big vegetable person when we met. And I do roasted Brussels sprouts and roasted cauliflower all the time in the winter. I mean, all the time. It's the, it's the vegetables that are, that are seasonal at this time of year here. 
and he loves them. And he's always like, I never ate these growing up. And he's Italian. His mother's a fabulous cook. She just wasn't into, uh, she didn't make a lot of those type of veggies. So as a result, he wasn't that interested in, he was always like, oh, I'll eat it if you make it. But now he eats them all the time. It's like a regular part of our rotation. But I feel like uh, those type of vegetables can get a bad rep because when you steam them or boil them, they stink. So it makes it harder. It, and, and the flavors, it, they don't get that caramelized depth of flavor. So I feel like roasted veggies are, are, are something that we, we eat constantly. We, eat them. we have them in both stores every day and we always have them at home. It's just a, it's just a great meal base no matter, it's a great place to start for a great meal. Do you put pomegranate molasses on your Brussels sprouts when you roast them? Yes, I do. And in the, and in the winter, I put pomegranate seeds also as like, like yeah. for a holiday table because it looks super pretty. And, um, and between that and the extra virgin olive oil, salt, and a little bit of a lapel pepper, I feel like you got the sweet, you got the little bit spicy, you got the savory thing going on. It's all good. Well, and I feel like that turns Brussels sprouts, which a lot of people dislike, into candy almost. And I think doing it that way, especially, you know, the easy trick is you just mix it with bacon and bacon makes everything taste better. But if you're <laughs> cooking for people who don't eat pork, then that's a great, you know, kind of other way of turning them into something rich and delicious. Yeah. Plus, if it, it, without the meat, it, you can eat them at you can eat them cold. Like I feel like that's the only the only disadvantage. We love we eat plenty of meat, but the only disadvantage of putting meat in something like that is it has to be warmed. Well, I hate to tell you this, but I will eat cooked bacon cold, so <laughs> it wouldn't turn me off. But I, but I think I think that 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 that's sage advice. And I, I'm assuming also you put the pomegranate seeds on after it's cooked, not or do you cook it? You don't cook it with the seeds. Yeah, They're I like put a, it on after it's cooked, but while it's still hot. So some of them will burst a little bit, and you'll get that little bit of juice coming out. I mean, I love pomegranate seeds. I love the texture and the taste. A lot of people don't like because the seed inside is solid, but um, I love them. And they're very, I mean, Middle Easterners use them on everything. So um, I, we use them We use them quite a bit. And um, But I do, I love them. They, they look like little jelly bursts throughout the Brussels sprouts, and they just make, it's super festive for a, t- for a holiday meal. Well, I'm definitely going to try that. I have fresh pomegranate seeds that I de-seeded and are frozen in my fridge, but I've been trying to think what I'm going to do with them. Cause I, but I think also if you've not discovered pomegranate seeds is like, they're an amazing garnish for, you can just throw them on salad. You can put them on, you know, Greek yogurt with honey. And then you have like, and cinnamon and you have like a full pretty dessert. They're just, I love them. They're great. You can drop them in Kava with a, with a teaspoon of pomegranate molasses and it tastes amazing. Drop, say that again, drop them in what? You can drop them in kava or um, sparkly sparkly wine. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. okay, kava, yeah. With a little bit of pomegranate molasses, which gives you like, it kind of sinks on the bottom, but it, it gives you a really good like back end at the end of the, at the end of the glass of kava. And plus the seeds are like kind of crunchy and sweet. You know, I like all those kind of, um, I like bursts. Wow, you've, you've just given us a Middle Eastern cure royale. It's just like amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Try it and see what you think. I will. That's great. All right. So I wanted to ask you, um, just because our, you know, how we got introduced and to, to tell us what your plans are for the grant, uh, the $5,000 grant from the foundation that comes with the Julia Child First Book Award. What are you planning to apply the grant towards? I was completely surprised by the grant, but I was delighted. Um, we, what I wanted, what I would like to do going forward is to do more um, uh, like live stream classes um, and stuff like that. We have done a few, but I mean, I'm working with just an iPhone. So um, I would love to set up a home video studio in my kitchen to do IG Live or hosting Zoom classes. It'd be a great opportunity for me to explore virtually interacting with the guests. I love I love interacting with my clients and my customers at work. So, um, and I really enjoyed, I didn't think I was going to like it, but what I did a live cooking class and there was a moderator and she was telling me, I was answering questions while I was doing it. It was a lot of fun. And I think that I would love to set up a, an actual uh, place to do that here. That way I could interact like that. I mean, so much of food and cooking comes from personal interaction and it would be great to cook alongside the readers. I mean, in my capacity as culinary director at Tahati's, I love to wander the house, talk to the customers and just chit chat about food. And I think it would be really amazing to be able to do that um, on Instagram and with you know with video feed where I could be talking to people or I could be making a dish and discussing it with people. Um I, I love that whole idea of being able to do that. And I think a home studio would allow me to to spend a little more time with people and to cook with them, which is is fun. And I definitely enjoy doing stuff like that. I mean we could host some stuff on our website showing, you know, a dish that I'm making and maybe people can cook along. 
Well, I think just in our last few minutes of conversation, you just proved that by talking about these recipes and how you could do these things and how you could demo them and people could do it with you. And I think, you know, Instagram has now provided such a effective, cost-effective, efficient forum. And I was also struck by, I was asking, uh, this is a while ago, the, the baker Dory Greenspan, who, you know, is of a certain age and has embraced social media, but seems to be sort of, you know, inundated with messages and comments. And I asked her, like, has that been hard? Is it overwhelming? Julia herself was sort of a skeptic of the internet. And this is, you know, 20 years ago. And Dory said sort of something similar. She's like, no, I love it. Because I used to write books, and they'd go out into the world. And unless I was at a book signing, I didn't know what people thought. And now I get all this feedback about what's working and what's not working. And, and she, I was surprised that she found it more helpful than invasive. Yeah, I think it's it's really it's an it's another avenue. I mean, food people like to talk about food. Um, I know I love to talk about food, so it's another avenue for for me to talk to people. I am a little bit intimidated by the technology. I openly admit, but I have a team that helps me with that. And um, when I that was the first thing I when I saw the grant, I was like, you know what? If I could use that to make the technology more accessible to me, so that I have stuff set up already, I don't have to start from scratch each time. I think that it would be great, but I, I do enjoy the, the back and forth on Instagram and on Facebook a lot more than I thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be very impersonal, but I'm finding it's really not that people are, it, the rest of the world is moving. And I, you know, it's interesting to be able to talk to people as if they were in the store. Well, I can't wait to hear how it goes and to uh, uh, see your first uh, sessions on Instagram. And do you, do you think, have you, this was your first book. Do you feel like there are more or you're more focused on sort of the teaching aspect for the moment? Um, I definitely would be interested in doing another book. Um, I, it would probably have to be after I was out of the day-to-day of the actual stores because it's it, it this took a long, long time because I, I, I managed the store full-time. So, um, But I have a really great team now. So I could definitely see doing something like that down the road. I'm looking to, to do some online first and see how get some feedback. I'm always cooking and writing and typing and saving. And I have whole files of things that could potentially be another book. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think I want to, I, I think I want to play a little bit around with doing the online first and then um, see how I feel. I would be delighted with the opportunity to, you know, to continue with the recipe development and, and see where it takes me and decide that as we, as, as we're moving forward. Well, we're excited to see uh, where those avenues take you. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back to hear Christine's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or you can tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Christine, what's your Julia Moment? I think the thing that most influenced me about her is that she made food approachable. Not in the way of a quote-unquote chef, but as a person passionate about food, talking about it, cooking it, enjoying it. She always came across as the person that was talking about food with you while she was cooking versus talking at you, which is a very interesting distinction because it brings the dish to life in front of the student. And her way with people appeared to be both remarkable and approachable, the kind of person you could cook with for hours and then enjoy a meal with good wine afterwards. Learn by doing and listening rather than by lecturing. I always felt that that was her approach. Like she always sounds like, well, there might be a mistake, but it's totally fine. You know, you can correct it. It felt like you were sitting in the kitchen with somebody and they were talking to you when you listened to her. And I think that that makes, that made her a lot more approachable than some of the other chefs of the time. And for me, it resonated because you, even if a recipe had 107 ingredients, I didn't feel like you know, I'm not gonna be able to, she would be like talking it through and it just seemed ex- like an extremely approachable way to, to teach somebody something. And I think that I learned a lot from that. And um, when I do things, when I cook with people, my takeaway from that is cook with them and not in front of them. Mm-hmm. So that they're, they're participating and nobody feels intimidated by what you're doing. And I really, 
I feel like that's what made her, I mean, besides the fact that she was, she's an absolute icon, I felt like she was a, a person and not just a chef. And I love that. Well, I love that you picked that too. And I think that approachability, now I, I wish she was still around so I could ask her, especially now with you know people being on camera in many ways. So more, how did she have that innate thing where she could look at the camera and feel like it was a person rather than a machine? And mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was because that was kind of part of it too, is she could pretend that she was there with someone, as you say, teaching them and helping them rather than just demoing in, in front of them. Yeah, it definitely is a very unique quality, and some I think it's 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 definitely stood out. It definitely shined shines from her that that kind of that 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 she could speak to the to, to the person and and with the person. Well, we'll 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 stand by and see how your 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 channeling of Julia goes when you get your uh, your uh, your own teaching setup uh, ready. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. It was delightful. Thanks very much for having me. Our pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening and joining us for the start of season 16. If you want to follow Christine and look out for when she's got her Instagram uh, courses going, she's at Christine underscore is underscore cooking on Instagram and at Flavors of the Sun on Twitter. The book, of course, is Flavors of the Sun, the Sahadi's Guide to Understanding, Buying, and Using Middle Eastern Ingredients by Christine Sahadi Whalen with photographs by Kristen Teague out now from Chronicle Books, ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Check out newly released Julia Child video clips from The French Chef at Julia Child on Facebook. And for more at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15th to 21st. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest events and news in and around Santa Barbara, including a soon-to-be-announced spring pop-up. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.